Hello and welcome to another episode of Mormon Matters Podcast, your thoughtful yet provocative weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, and politics. I'm your host, John DeLynn, and today I could not be more pleased to have back with us three of our regular panelists. Jay Nelson Seawright is an assistant professor of political science at a university unnamed in the Chicago area and an amateur Mormon studies enthusiast. Jay writes about Mormon themes online at the website buycommonconsent.com, where he is not busy doing the work he's actually paid to do. Jay, thank you for coming again on Mormon Matters. Pleased to be here, John. Jay, uh, let me just jump in with a question real quick. Is the fact that your university is unnamed because it is actually a community college and you're embarrassed? (laughs) Almost certainly, yeah. I thought so. It has nothing to do with with fear of professional consequences of being too involved in Mormon studies. No, I would never have dreamed that. Chicago Community College Tech. That's right. John Fowles is a lawyer living in London with his wife and three children. He is interested in Mormonism and Mormon blogs and has participated for several years in Mormon blogging. That seems a little bit repetitive. But, John, thank you for coming on Mormon Matters. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, all the way from London. Yeah. How's the weather? It's great. We've had great weather the last few days. That's good. That's good. Well, welcome. Thanks for coming back. Um, and our uh, second, our twin from the um, from the UK contingency, Ronan James Head, is from Malvern, England, home of the Wilford Woodruff Missionary Sites. Ronan is a scholar of the ancient Near East, currently dissertating and a teacher of religious studies. He is married with three kids and was recently called as Elders Quorum President. Congratulations, Ronan. Yes, commiserations. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Nice and, to be here. And Ronan blogs about Mormon stuff, again, at the mighty buycommonconsent.com. Hey, John Fowles, do you feel left out that you're not a permablogger on Buy Common Consent? Yeah, yeah. It's, me too. But, you know, what are we going to do? Very exclusive. <laughs> well, you're both honored commenters, so, so that, that counts for something. Oh, you're a diplomat, Jay. Thank you. Very, We're very good. good. <laughs> well, good. Well, gentlemen, um, we have a wonderful program uh, scheduled for today. But before we jump in, there was some pretty big news. And I, I have to say a couple of days ago when I was uh, leaving the Sunstone offices, I think it was on uh, Tuesday, Dan Witherspoon said to me on my way out, the church has apologized for Mountain Meadows Massacre. And so I rushed home and, and went online to read the, the press statement. And as I read the text, I guess I didn't quite interpret it the way that it had been um, both told to me by Dan and also as the headlines seemed to indicate both in the Deseret News uh, and in the Salt Lake Tribune. So let's just start with Jay, since Jay, you we're pretty heavily involved in that Mountain Meadows Massacre Mormon Matters episode. Do you have an analysis or some thoughts on the statement? And then we'll go to Ronan and John. Well, my thought, I mean, you know, the statement does say more than anything the church has said before. The key thing is that it uses the word regret more than once. So the church regrets these events, you know, regrets that they happened. You, you don't regret something that, that you didn't in some way cause. So that's the church as a corporate entity taking some responsibility for this, which hasn't happened before and is, I think, a major thing. So kudos to the church. That's what I'd say. All right. Uh, Ronan, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I watched the uh, clip of Elder Eyring on YouTube, and you know the the 
the sincerity was real and the and he seemed to be very emotional particularly when expressing his hope that healing could take place through you know through Jesus and that's all that matters really it, as far as like is it an apology is it not an apology i mean i'm going to irritate jay now my irish friend but i remember being in dublin airport several years ago and there was a plaque on the wall because apparently Tony Blair had been there and had officially apologized for the potato famine. <laughs> and I remember thinking that that was completely ridiculous because what has Tony Blair to apologize for? Now, I don't want to get into discussion in this, you know. So expressing regret is something all of us can do, but I don't think Elder Eyring needs to apologize, nor, nor do I think that the church today in 2007 needs to say, we apologize. It's enough to say, we regret. And, and I found the remarks by Elder Eyring very moving. Mm, very good. How about John? You have, John Fowles, do you have any thoughts? Uh, nothing particularly different. Um, I, I think I probably agree more with Ronan. And, um, you know, but I, I don't think that the church would really have anything to lose by just giving a full-on apology. I agree with Ronan that it, it's not probably necessary, basically just because of the time that has, has elapsed in, in 2007. Um, but, you know, a full-on apology that members of the church did this, or maybe that um, local leaders of the church caused their subordinates to commit murder, I mean, that would, you know, the Church has expressed regret about that, and, you know, I don't think that if it were to issue a full-on apology for that, it would necessarily um, cause people to interpret that statement as any kind of admission that it was Church policy or that the Church itself committed the massacre. Right. So, you know, I think they could, you know, use the word apology without... uh, invoking that, but I think expressing deep regret is, is probably enough, and I, I would hope uh, would um, be something that is good for the um, descendants of the victims to hear. Now, uh, I heard today coming driving down to Salt Lake City that the day after the statement was released, there was a follow-up statement by someone in church PR saying something to the effect of this is not an apology and we we don't agree with the newspaper articles that have characterized it as such. Did anyone hear about that? Yeah, that yeah. was, um, I think, Tuttle, uh, someone in the church PR department, um, said, said we didn't use the word apology or something like we don't use the word apology, we use the word, we, we say, uh, profound regret. Um, I think the context of his comments make it pretty clear that um, it that statement is in response, perhaps, to a statement that says, is the church apologizing for Mountain Meadows? And then in response, Tuttle is saying, well, we don't use the word apology. We use the word profound regret. Do we think, I mean... I, I don't see Tuttle's, I don't see Tuttle's statement as denying that the church is apologizing, but rather just saying in response to that, well, we don't use the word apology, we just say profound regret. 
you know, it's a finesse thing. And it has to do with, I mean, everybody understands that, that you know, church institutions contributed to the situation. And, you know, it, it's all a matter of the degree to which people are willing to place blame in one place or another. But I, I, I think that for a lot of people, this may be enough of a statement, whether it's an apology in quotes or not. Um, we'll just have to see. Now, uh, you know, two weeks ago, it was to my utter amazement that a member of my elders quorum in Logan um, gave a lesson on Mountain Meadows Massacre. And the whole hour, or 45 minutes, was dedicated to the Ensign article, which I thought was wonderful. But the one thing that everyone stopped short on that I brought up towards the end was that, that the murders, of course, are just half the story. And we talked about this in our Mountain Meadows episode, that the cover-up on behalf, I guess, of Brigham Young in the church was at least as equally disturbing to many as the actual murders themselves. Well, it, some people criticized this statement, saying that they were sort of putting it all on local leaders and not acknowledging the gorilla in the room, which is the fact that, that the church, maybe even up to Brigham Young, did everything they could to keep anyone who was culpable from, um, from receiving justice except for... John D. Lee at the end is a scapegoat. Now, do I have the historical facts wrong? And if I don't, do you guys, um, may, do any of you wish that the church might have uh, have owned up to the culpability of the cover-up? I think I think you've got. I mean, your interpretation matches with what most historians who work on the subject would um, would say. And you know, the the statement didn't cover anything really past the commission of the crime. Um, you could see that as a weakness of the statement, and, and there's you know room for that to be a valid concern. But I, I'd prefer to focus on what's actually unprecedented in this, which is the the degree of um, the degree of frankness and emotion involved in this statement. You, the church has talked about Mountain Meadows once or twice before, but this is this is the most that's ever been done, and I think it's worth emphasizing what has been done rather than what hasn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ronan, John, any other final thoughts? Not really. I think that the, uh, I think that the Ensign article does talk about the cover-up, as far as I remember. But I may be wrong. No, I think it stops pretty much at the moment. I think there's one paragraph after the, the massacre occurs. It, it, that's being saved, apparently, for Volume 2 of the, um, of the Church Historical Department project. Oh, seriously? There's going to be okay. a follow-up? That, that's what I've been told, yeah. Okay, okay. And I, I wonder if it's to some point we owe an apology to, uh, to Juanita Brooks. Just, it seems like she took a lot of heat for writing the book that maybe is what led to all of this in many ways. Um, do you guys think that, that she deserves some type of, uh, you know, salvific offering to restore her name or, or to restitute for the pain or... I know I'm, I'm just, it seems like a sad chapter in the history, and I just thought I'd bring it up. What do you guys think? Same thing? Let's I think she's kind positive. of a hero, honestly. I think she's kind of a hero, and I think we, she deserves recognition as such. I mean, you know, she, she wouldn't be a hero if she hadn't gone through the pain. That doesn't mean the pain was good, but that, that is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Well, I agree with all of you. Um, a major... Uh, congratulations, kudos, a, a feeling of appreciation to the LDS Church for what, what seems to be a very giant step forward in the willingness to be candid and open and, 
and even admit, uh, you know, at least partial responsibility or regret. So anyway, well, that's great. Um, let's now turn to the meat of this uh, podcast presentation. Um, Ronan, instead of me trying to inadequately set it up, why don't I turn the time over to you and allow you to do that in its full force and glory? Okay, well, seeing as I'm the token non-American around here, <laughs> and, and seeing as my good friend John Fowles is also uh, on this green and pleasant aisle, we decide to have a uh, kind of a more of an international flavor, although we must again admit that we are all white males who have lived... Yeah almost exclusively our lives in, in comfortable surroundings in, in the Western world. So when I speak of the international church, I have to admit that my experience is, is restricted to England and Austria. But I know that, uh, that both John DeLynn and, uh, and Jay have spent time in Latin America, so hopefully we can, we can spread out a little bit. <laughs> but anyway, um, I wanted to start just by mentioning something that happened here in England uh, few weeks ago, we had the inaugural conference of the European Mormon Studies Association, which is an attempt to bring together um, both scholars of Mormonism who, who are European, whether Mormon or not. So, for, exa so for example, we had um, uh, Douglas Davies, who is a very famous scholar of Mormonism who's actually um, not Mormon, but, but anyway, so we have on that, uh, that, that was attempt the first attempt was to bring together Europeans who are interested in Mormon studies and then Americans who do Euro European manifestations of Mormonism. So we had this first conference and we brought Armand Maas along to give the keynote address. And he gave a very interesting talk that was basically entitled um, the, the, the Costs of Membership for International Mormons. And he restricted it mostly to Europe. And he talked about the additional costs which exist for European Mormons that don't exist for American Mormons. And um, he basically talked mostly about the institutional cost, or actually, better put, the personal cost that Mormons face because of the institutional bias against new religious movements such as Mormonism in European countries. So, for example, in Belgium... The church is officially on the count, on the cult watch list, and how do, how does that play in the lives of of uh, of, a, of Belgian Mormons? So that was my first the first thing I wanted to talk about was perhaps to bring John Fowles in on this because I know he's looked at um, counter cult legislation in Europe and how this affects Mormons, both negatively and perhaps just not at all. So uh, John, do you know something about the Brussels situation? Well, I, I would agree with, um, I mean, with the point that that there are huge costs um, that play out in, in an institutional setting to belonging to the church in Europe. Um, I think, uh, Be you know, Belgium might be sort of the one, the the most uh, prominent because of its list of 189 harmful sectarian organizations. So, uh, you know, there's... And there's been a lot of controversy surrounding that list. Um, and the person behind the list, um, you know, has profusely um, tried to guarantee that inclusion on that list 
in no way implies that you actually are a harmful sectarian organization, but it's, it's you know, a little bit of a stretch for most, I, I would think for most rational observers, although since I am a Latter-day Saint, that makes me a biased observer, but it seems to me that even rational, detached observers would be able to see that inclusion on a list that's titled, you know, 189 harmful sectarian organizations, at least implies that since you're on that list, you are one of those. Hey, guys. Um, hey, guys. Real quick, just for those of us who have no idea what you're talking about, give us some examples of, of first of all, are there a bunch of cults that are more of a problem than, let's say, cults in the U.S.? What are some examples of the cults? What problems are they causing? And then and just tell us a tiny bit about this list and why it was created and and how the list is used to affect people because – I, I don't know much about this. I, I know Scientologists well, cause a lot of problems in, in Europe, and that's about all I know. Well, I think that yeah, in... Well, in si- si- go ahead, Ronan. Go ahead, John. Oh, okay. I was only going to say that... Ronan, Ronan trumps John because he's actually a native. <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> that's okay. Well, Scientology in, Scientology in Germany is the classic example. You're probably aware that they freak out over Tom Cruise being in movies, you know? Uh, Europe... We, we, our cults are your cults. Most of our cults are actually American-based or of American origin, and that. So there's no, there's no major difference, I don't think, um, in the ter- in terms of the new religious movements that are in Europe, that, that they are also in America. The difference, however, is that we, despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact that Europe is, you know, supposedly post-religious, you have because of that a suspicion of religion particularly fundamentalist religion that people freak out about people who are too religious because you, you're obviously crazy. Coupled with, despite the fact that no one really believes anymore, you still have uh, government, you know, you still have church-state, you know, combination. Here in England, the Church of England remains the state religion, despite the fact no one goes. So because of that, you have various countries in Europe who... Religion can be harmful, particularly cults. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, plus Moonies, and you know the usual suspects. So, but it's important to stress that not every European country does this. As far as I know, the UK doesn't. Uh, we're much more relaxed about this, but places like Belgium do. So, and John, and, and being on that watch list is is not good because it, it gives the government power to you know shut you down. Or at least deny you some rights to do with adopting children, you know, stuff like this. So, are there governments? Being on that, fact, is, oh, go ahead, John. John, jump in. Being on being on that list um, subjects you to higher scrutiny. Um, I mean, you're, it's, it, it subjects your uh, religious organization to higher scrutiny, and then you, as a member of that religious organization, um, it, it's almost impossible to conceive that you would not face disadvantages in society and in the institutions of society and coming up through education and through the types of institutions that that you need to comply with and become a part of in order to be uh, a contributing member of society. I would just add that, um, the, and this might be an American's perspective, whereas Ronan is just given a European perspective. But um, really, this the the problem is that um, anything that is 
considered a new religious movement is suspect. Um, and it doesn't have to do necessarily with fundamentalism. It's simply, if it's not Catholic or Protestant, then it's called a sect. Um, and in the German language, that uh, could be probably more appropriately translated as cult. In, in the English language, you know, we don't have any negative connotation really to the word sect. You know, all the various sects just refers to all the different types of Christian churches or other churches. Um, but if you, were, if you use the word sect in Germany, sekta, it's a very bad connotation meaning cult. And any church that is not one of the, you know, either Protestant, Catholic, or um, so the Protestant state church or the Catholic state church or the, Jew, uh, the Jewish religious organization um, really is already labeled as a sect. What about Muslims? Do, do Muslims get labeled as sects? They're a pretty big deal in Europe these days. Um, I think Muslims... Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. No. They don't. As as a a general rule, Islam, you know, broad tent Islam is not on this list. Now, there may be individual sects or or political organizations, which, because of recent events, are starting to be more scrutinized. But in general, these new religious movements that are considered cults have been more of the, you know, the the Christian-based ones. Right. As opposed to Muslim ones. So let me ask. So, what, oh, go ahead, John. Well, I was going to say, getting back to to the Belgian list, the the, the Belgium's government reaction, uh, the Belgian government reaction to um, the presence of new religious movements within its borders, is to pretty much label all of them as um, harmful sectarian organizations. There's, I think, 189. I mean, Belgium's a small country, but even just within that country, there's 189 entities or organizations on that list, including our church, including churches that we would consider in the United States completely legitimate, non-harmful in any way. Uh, People like Baptists, certain types of Baptists, Southern Baptists, um, also appear on the list. So it's not just Mormons, it's really new, what they consider new religious movements. And is there, can you guys, are there any examples where the LDS church in any of these countries is being specifically discriminated against or acted upon or at some clear disadvantage other than sort of maybe this abroad stigma that might be applied? Or is anyone being like, you know, with, with people coming to the churches to like shut them down or to monitor or permits being denied, anything like that anywhere? I think that there are anecdotal evidence. There's anecdotal evidence of that type of thing happening in places like France and Belgium, at least at least as far as permits maybe being more heavily scrutinized, applications for permits for buildings. But that that even happens in the United States. I'm not sure that there's much going on aside from the broad stigma. But I think the broad stigma is enough. I mean, I think governments shouldn't be engaging in. Um, stigmatizing people based on their religious affiliation. It kind of runs contrary to to my own perspective as, as an American. Sure, sure. However, however, let me argue the, the opposite here. It is definitely true that harmful religious organizations do exist. I mean, let's be clear here. There are such things as cults that are dangerous. And so then the question is, where do you draw the line? And 
why why can we say no we're not a cult because ABC whereas that group there who we know you know brainwash their followers require their followers to you know discontinue their family ties etc etc these aren't just scare stories these things really do happen where do we you know how 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 can we say we're not a cult and these guys are because I think John right. would prefer and to say no one is a cult no 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 I, that's we, not we, true but we have religious we should have religious freedom anyone can believe what they like but clearly cults exist so the government well, in Europe is obliged to do something I, I don't yes, think, Renan, I don't think that that's objectively definable I mean I think cult is a political no, term not. rather than an objective term it's, com- it's completely right, and, not definable and I mean, if you think it. about the 19th century, I mean, Mormons in the 19th century actually did kind of ask people to abandon their family ties by moving off to Utah, did ask them to join polygamy, did ask them to do all of these sorts of things that might seem scary and brainwashing to us, and were certainly portrayed as such at the time. For sure. I mean, down and the road the, from where I live, John, John Fowles, his great, well, your great-great-grandfather, lit, like, grew up about 10 miles from where I'm speaking to you now you know the son as far as i remember john the son joined the church went to utah uh the the father stayed here i mean you couldn't get more cultish than that at least you it looks like it doesn't it there's a guy yeah, who joined this american the- church and he's never seen again in his own country right if that would happen now and they, and they were to go to like french guiana or somewhere we'd freak out so but the is difference difficult. is, of course, that our cult is the true one. Our cult isn't... It, one of the, to provide context, as, as um, John DeLynn was asking for a little of context for the Belgian list, context is... I, and the name of this particular organization is, is slipping my mind right now in this moment, but the motivation was the, the sort of cult... Um, murder suicides that occurred in France um, quite a bit earlier, and that was still preoccupying maybe the Belgian government and the French government in in choosing to uh, go the parliamentary route of identifying religious organizations that perhaps might be harmful because they're new. Obviously, the Catholic Church and the whichever brand of the product of the Protestant Church is the predominant one in those areas, they, those churches don't appear on the list of harmful sectarian organizations. Um, but if, if you're a newer religious movement, really what that list is is a list of new religious movements. Um, it's just unfortunately named. So, so it sounds like this is um, something, it's kind of like a civil liberties issue that are causing folks like Mormons or faiths like Mormons to be a little bit alarmed there may be a little bit of anecdotal stuff going on, but it's not yet risen to the level of severity to where we should we should sort of be extremely alarmed. Is that a fair characterization? Well, let me let me just I think um, make a point from the German experience if I can, and that's the one I'm most familiar with. Um, in Germany, um, they had a parliamentary commission, um, which was called an inquiry commission, in uh, between 1996 and 1998 that looked into the issue of what, they, their, their mandate was called an investigation of sects and psycho groups, and then in the you know, they took a very enlightened approach by trying to reject the term sect because it was so politically charged um, 
in the very opening pages of their end report, and they, but it was kind of funny that they rejected the term sect, and the way they rejected it was they just added the words so-called in front. So they said, well, we can't <laughs> use the word sect because it's so politically charged, so we've decided that we're going to use the word so-called sects and psychogroups. <laughs> and, um, of course, Latter-day Saints were included as so-called sects and psychogroups. Um, and, um, but, you know, the report raised some eyebrows, not just among Latter-day Saints. There, uh, before the final report um, was issued in June of 1998, um, there was a letter by six professors, um, signed by six professors, and submitted to the commission um, in May of 1998. And I just would point out some, some points that they raised. Um, first of all, they said that, quote, the membership of this commission, its interim report published in s- summer 1997 and the circumstances accompanying its work give grounds to fear that the final report, which is scheduled for June 1998, will cause considerable damage to the Federal Republic of Germany. And, what, and the damage that they're talking about was, quote, that the German state is once more taking part in the defamation of and discrimination against religious and ideological minor- minorities. And um, their concern was, is pretty legitimate, in, in my opinion. And here's what their concern was, quote, included among the member, the, I'm sorry, included among the expert members of the Enquiry Commission are sect watchers and ideological officers from both the state churches but not experts in the field of other religious and ideological communities and no representatives of the heavily criticized free self-development market and management training. It's a very poor translation of this letter, I I might add. But it it states, the sect officers of the state Protestant church now have the opportunity to pronounce judgment over those who are in ideological competition with them and whom they have been confronting for years in the German courts. They're speaking predominantly of Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists at that point. Unfortunately, there appears to be double grounds for suspecting prejudice on the part of one element of the Enquiry Commission's membership. They are agents on behalf of competing religious communities and have for years been involved in legal proceedings and disputes with the very people on whose activities they are now to pronounce judgment. And that's the problem, and, and Ronan highlighted it at the very beginning, that in these countries there exist state churches and and those the people that are involved with those state churches are sitting in these very committees that are writing up reports about who is and is not a harmful sectarian organization. Right, right, right. So, but, it, but but Ronan, what's your perspective on whether it's actually doing real damage versus just a civil liberties threat? Um, you know, just where the rubber meets the road. Do you have an opinion on that at all? Okay. It's doing enough damage that the church has a missionary couple in Brussels, which is the seat of the European Union. The LDS Church. That our church okay, yeah. has a missionary couple in Brussels who basically lobby on a low on a low level uh, the different organisations in the EU to try and break down some of the church-state barriers that, that always exist that favour the you know the big churches. Uh, I know that, for example, in I think it was the Czech Republic or Slovakia, we marshaled people, missionaries got sent from other parts of Europe to try and get signatures in order for the church to be able to get official recognition. I mean, on the on the in terms of missionary work, it it is very useful to be officially recognised and to be off these lists, right, where where they exist. Now, I'll give you a funny counter example. 
I have no idea how this came about, but in, but in Austria, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is one of the seven state-recognized churches of oh. religions. So you have the Catholic, you have Catholics, Protestants, Islam broadly, Judaism broadly. I think the Buddhist, uh, or, you know, Buddhism and the, the Mormons and Greek Orthodox. And the Mormons stand out like this crazy, like, you, you know, Catholics, Evangelicals, Mormons. And I have no idea how that came about. But cleverly, the church uses that to its advantage. So, for example, in Vienna currently, because the church is state-recognized, the church in, in Austria has decided to start flexing its muscles. So they went to the municipal cemetery in Austria, where there's a Catholic part, there's a Protestant part, there's a Jewish part. And they said, we are state-recognized. We are one of the seven we want our own Mormon cemetery plot, and they got it. So okay, in Vienna, Ronan, Ronan, there will be a Mormon cemetery. Ronan, you broke up. You yes. broke up a tiny bit there. So you, they went where to talk about cemeteries? Your your thing broke up. Okay, they the church in Vienna went to the uh, Vienna City Council, the okay. municipal council, and said, "We want a cemetery." We want our own part of the cemetery where we can, where it's the Mormon cemetery, and they got it simply because they're on the list of good religions, you know. So where where we're on the list of good religions, we make use of it. Where where we're not on the list, we try hard to get on it through lawyers work for us. We get um, senators from the U.S. come over and talk. You know, the the usual Mormon senators will meet government representatives and pull strings. So the church's goal is to get off the bad lists and onto the good lists. And it's mostly, it's for missionary work, and it also helps remove the stigma of the rank and file, who don't like to be thought of as being cult members. You know, that's not good if you want to be promoted at work. <laughs> fascinating, fascinating. John Fowles or um, Jay, did you guys have any final thoughts or comments on this before we transition to part two? Uh, I, I think that I, I could just maybe share a very quick antidote, um, anecdote um, <laughs> about this. Um, it's obviously not representative because it's just a story, but, um, you know, someone that I know personally um, has faced um, severe persecution based on being a Latter-day Saint in his town in Germany, I think, partially as a result of this environment and this um, culture of um, suspecting religions just because they're newer or just because they're not Catholic or, or um, Lutheran. Um, this person that I know um, had such severe trouble that he literally had to leave school, and it was because not just because of um, problems with fellow students, but um, the headmaster of the school was... Um, basing judgments on this person because of this person's religion as a member of the church, and it was a Catholic, sort of state Catholic school, so, I mean, the headmaster was doing it under color of, of a state responsibility. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, those types of things are happening, but, that, but that, that's not something that would be isolated to Germany. That could happen anywhere. I mean, you could have that kind of treatment in the United States, too, so... But um, I think that having being able to act under the color of your state responsibilities, such as the headmaster of a state school, certainly creates other difficulties. Hmm. 
Well, that's a, that's. Um, I mean, it is chilling, isn't it, to consider what the effects might be. I, I wouldn't want to overplay it too much. I mean, I, as far as I remember from your friend John, didn't he go to the UK? Didn't he end up in yeah, England? Yeah, I mean, he voted with his feet. Yeah, he he lives in England now. I mean, that's pretty severe. To right, no, I'm, not, to I'm not suggesting it's not severe. I'm just, I'm just saying that it, that that there are parts of Europe where this is particularly bad, and there are parts oh, yeah, where it's not right. as bad. And, okay, so yeah. exactly. And, uh, yeah. We we also know of a sto- we also know of a story in Belgium, I think, of a uh, um, and I'm not passing on his, sir. I remember it directly, where a um, a, a mother and daughter were, I think, converts to the church. The daughter was pretty young, like early teens, and I think the mother died. And it was, you know, her wish that her daughter remain a Latter-day Saint. But the the daughter was subsequently fostered out, and the new foster parents wouldn't let this girl go to the LDS Church, despite the fact that was her mother's wish. And and you know, the the state didn't care, you know, because why would you want to send this girl to the crazy Mormons? Yeah. You know, so there are these there are these events that happen that are tough, but it's not that Mormons are being, you know burnt out of their homes. That's right, not... Right, right, exactly, right. I'm going to give that impression. All right, Jay, we'll give you right. the final word on this. Any thoughts? Or... <laughs> I don't actually have that much to add. I haven't ever lived in Europe, and in Latin America, the problems are you know, quite different. So okay. I think that John and Ronan have covered this pretty well. Brilliant. All right, Ronan, what's part two? Okay, well, let's, let's, move, let's move to Latin America. But I just, I just had another thought that I've got to get off my chest. Please. Um, in a way, in a way, I've okay. I've experienced the church in growing up in the church in England. I've served my mission in Vienna, Austria, and I lived there recently. And I also lived in the U.S. in, in Maryland. And in a very strong way, being Mormon in all three of those places was very similar. That is, Western Europe and East Coast America, Mormon was a, a brand of more, being Mormon that was. You know, you had the full program of the church, you went to primary, you did young men's, you went on missions, you did seminary, you were very Mormon, and you did all the things that Mormon kids were doing. The difference was that it wasn't part of your surrounding culture, but the point I'm trying to make is that that was the same in Maryland, in the United States, as it was in England and in Vienna. So in a way, um, there's, there's being a Mormon in, 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 in Mormon country and then there's being Mormon everywhere else. And everywhere else can include the East Coast of the United States, where the kids face the same problems at high school, where they're the only Mormon kid, as they do in England. So, um, uh, in a way, it's not so much that there are costs associated with being an international Mormon. There are just costs of being a Mormon, especially when it's not part of your culture. Sure. But anyway, sure. I digress. No, it's good. Um, it's, yeah, okay, okay. Um, I was. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Latin America, or get you guys to talk about Latin America. But I was watching a program on TV recently. It was a documentary by John, and it was called "The War on Do," and it was about U.S. policy in Latin America since World War II. Hey, Ronan. Now, John hey, Pilger. Ronan, I'm really sorry. Yes. The internet connection's coming in and out a bit. So when you said it was a documentary by, you broke up. So just start. Roll back and start at that point. Okay, I, is it my internet connection or? I th- I think so, but I'm sure it's nothing you anyway. can control. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, so there was a documentary by John Pilger. 
called The War on Democracy. And it was about U.S. policy in Latin America since the war. Now, this guy, Pilger, is, he has a bias, that's for sure. But what struck me was that the level of, according to him, of anti-Americanism that is sprouting in, um, in Latin America uh, currently, you've seen some of the governments the West really supported disappear, and now we have a more leftist sweep across Latin America, at least in general terms. That's the impression I get. So my question is, what if the church... Okay, broadly, is anti-Americanism a problem for the church, specifically in Latin America? Could it be? Is it? Will it be? Jay Nelson, see right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, is anti-Americanism a problem for the church? The fact of the matter is, anti-Americanism in Latin America isn't a constant. It's something that has come and gone. You know, there, there have been times right. when Latin America as a region has been very pro-American, most recently during, during the 1990s. And when that's the case, and the has church that been absolutely good? benefits. Sorry? Right, exactly. I was going to... Yeah, so, so... Oh, no, please, it, go ahead. Yes. Ronan, you there? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry, you're going to have to edit this. But um, No problem. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, so the, the church's uh, ebbs and flows according to how much people love America? I mean, there, there is certainly an aspect of that. You know, um, the church, this, this all sort of also depends. I mean, there are different kinds of anti-Americanism. There's anti-Americanism that's in the government. There's anti-Americanism on the street sort of among mass individuals. When anti-Americanism is in the government in a Latin American country, that can cause particular problems for the church um, because the government can start doing the sorts of things that, um, that one might fear on the basis of these cult classifications we were talking about in Europe. So, you know, in Venezuela recently, the, the, the LDS, recently two years ago, the LDS church had to pull all of its non-Venezuelan missionaries out. And the missionary program has been drastically reduced there because of tensions between um, the Venezuelan government and the LDS church. And those draw back to actually U.S. domestic politics and U.S. domestic political coalitions. The sparking incident there was when um, Pat Robertson back in August of um, 2005 called for the assassination of Venezuela's president Hugo Chavez on his television show. <laughs> and in response to that, Chavez's government started harassing and threatening to expel missionaries from church organizations that Chavez's government saw as allies of Robertson. That included, in fact, the LDS church. Our missionaries were gone two months later. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so the, the domestic political coalition behind the Republicans in terms of the religious right in the United States is perceived by, by these actors in Latin America and can have consequences. You know, the church is slowed down right now in Venezuela, maybe until Chavez leaves, who knows. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll never, I, I have to admit, before my mission, I didn't know anything about U.S.-Latin American relations. And I think that I would guess that a, a, at least a plurality of our listeners know little as well. Um, but I'll never forget going to a place called Bananera in Guatemala that uh, used to be, it was a village that was almost created by the United Fruit Company, which I think previously had been named Del Monte. 
And what they had were these huge banana plantations where um, they would build entire subdivisions that were walled off by like these 10 or 20 feet walls. And, you know, what happened was, I guess in the 30s and 40s, Americans would just go down to Latin America, set up these big banana plantations or fruit uh, plantations, and they would basically take over not only towns, but then through commercial interest, through government intervention, take over entire governments. And in some instances, the U.S. government would actually overthrow um, uh, Latin American countries or or governments and even assassinate their leaders. And now now a lot of people might know this, a lot might not. What a shock it was for me as a missionary to go down there and learn all this for the first time. Yeah, I mean, just as a side point, it's, it, some Americans imagine that anti-Americanism in Latin America is is something that the Latin Americans do to America in some sense. But there's definitely there is definitely two sides to this story. And Guatemala is a great one. Um, in the 1950s, the United States quite directly overthrew a democratic, um, democratically elected government in that country under um, fear that it was turning communist, uh, ungrounded fears that it was turning communist. Um, the United States has intervened in a lot of other countries. Most recently, in 2003, there was a, a one-week coup against Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. The United States was the only country that recognized the military government that came in after that coup. <laughs> so we have a long history of of sort of playing around with the domestic politics of these countries. In Guatemala, there was more. You know, it wasn't just the coup. The United States trained and armed um, the Guatemalan military during an extended civil war, and that military did things like assassinate entire villages because those villages were deemed to be inherently communist. So the United States has had bad partners, some bad policies, and... um, you know, and bad decisions to go with some good things that we've certainly done in the region as well. And but it's it's that kind of history that, that that's at stake here. Those these are the things that people are um, concerned about. And and when the church is seen as connected to those, the problems can be serious. Yeah, I, I definitely two things that that come to mind. Mormon missionaries in Guatemala were always mistaken as representatives of the CIA. Mm-hmm. I heard that joke a lot. Are you guys from the SIA, they would say, the SIA? I'm not sure that was a joke. Yeah. Oh, well, why do you say that? I, I think that they really thought you were from the CIA. I, I, I've been told that there have been instances when the CIA has um, covered operatives as Mormon missionaries. So, you know, it's it's just a perception. It's it, They were serious when they asked you that. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and, and then, uh, oh... I don't know what else I was going to say. What else was I going to say, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not at all sure. Oh, go, ahead. Um, go ahead. So, I mean, you know, the, the issues of anti-Americanism are a difficulty because the church is seen as so linked with the United States. I can tell you a story from when my wife and I were living in Caracas um, in 2002. We, we were going to a ward in Caracas, and, and this is just one of my favorite instances of this. There was a fast and testimony meeting that within about five minutes devolved into a long political debate where one person after another would stand up and bear testimony either that we should all oppose Hugo Chavez because the, the church is from the United States and Chavez hates the United States, therefore by implication Chavez hates the church, or that we should support Hugo Chavez because they've been to the temple, and in the temple, 
the um, the prayer circle always prays for the, the president of this country. Therefore, the church is praying for Chavez, and therefore the church is pro-Chavez. <laughs> and this went through the whole hour, just back and forth. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting logic. Uh, Jay, Jay, is there a... Is there like a, a rich, poor divide in such opinion, or can you not tell? In Venezuela? No, what I mean is, uh, no. are more affluent, more likely Oh, in terms of anti-Americanism. More pro-American and affluent. Uh, it's it's actually quite complicated. Um, we can certainly say there there are ideological divides. People who are on the political right tend to be more pro-American. People on the political left tend to be more anti-American. But unfortunately, that spectrum doesn't doesn't correspond perfectly or even terribly closely to to social class. Um, and it also depends a lot on the country. I mean, there are countries where where the poor people, for example, in in northern Mexico. Uh, poor people tend to be very pro-American because they can, you know, get money for their households from the United States, whereas in some other countries it's it's quite the opposite. So it, it really it's hard to generalize. So is anti-Americanism, uh, Jay? Do you think it's something that's uh, pressuring the church in negative ways in Latin America? I, I, I honestly, you know, it's. It, the, the, the question really to ask is, is partly, you know, what does anti-Americanism do to us? But also partly, what could the church do about this? Sure. And part of the structure, I mean, the problem only arises because of two things. A, there are lots of people in the region of Latin America who, who are unhappy with the United States. And B, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is perceived by a lot of people in Latin America as being lockstep with the United States of America. And if either of those two facts was not true, there wouldn't be a problem for the church. So, that, you know, there are two options here. One would be to, to wade out what people call the pink tide, which is to say the current move towards the left and towards anti-Americanism in Latin America. And, you know, it's hard to know how long that would be. That could be five or ten years, maybe things turn around. It could be a generation. So we could decide to simply, you know, take our lumps and wait. Or the church could take steps to reduce the perception that it is linked with the United States, and that that would be the second option. Hmm. It's, it's hard to imagine how they could successfully do that and whether it would actually penetrate the minds of the masses in Latin America. Well, I don't think it would be instant, but I mean, you know, if, if it works in five or ten years, that, that might well be faster than, than the alternative, you know, depending. Sure. Sure. And it, it 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 would it would mean that the church would give up the boost that it gets when you, when the United States is popular in the region, but it would be a, sort of at the benefit of of not suffering when the church becomes unpopular. As to how it could be done, you know, there are ideas about this in terms of um, having having a more diverse leadership, having having the church be more localized. I mean, the church in Latin America often has a very non-Latin American flavor to it. And you know that 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 is one of the things that might be manipulable. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. So Ronan, I, I went. Uh, okay. Go ahead. Ronan or John? Jay. Someone. Jay. So Jay. I was going yeah. to say. I mean, you know, we can look at these things. There's a wonderful article by Henry Gorin in the most recent um, issue of Dialogue where he looks at the United States, or the Latter-day Saint experience in Nicaragua, where there was serious, you know, tension between the Sandinista government in the 1980s and the LDS Church. And, you know, one thing that Gorin finds is that 
that tension slowed down growth dramatically. In fact, it turned negative during the 1980s. But that in the, in the 1990s and subsequently, Nicaragua has, has grown very fast, that the church has been able to really move forward. So the, the, there, there's, there are all kinds of ways that this can play out in terms of, you know, the, 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 the lost membership in some sense that church suffers when it loses all its missionaries in Venezuela maybe isn't as much lost membership as postponed membership. So that there are different ways of looking at it. Well, Ronan, John take, take us back here. Oh, John Fowles. Is John around? Yeah, I'm. I'm here. Um, I. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, I I have two two comments on that. First is that um, I think in just focusing on membership numbers and saying maybe it's just some deferred membership that we have to deal with, that might lose the perspective that that total numbers of membership are, are great if they're high, that's true. But mm-hmm. I, I think that a concern the church might have is that individuals fall between the cracks and, and maybe ha- even have their, their salvation in jeopardy if they choose to leave the church. So it might not be about total numbers of members, but about individuals who then uh, get uh, disadvantaged or have a negative effect in their lives. So, mm-hmm. you know, that would be a concern the church would have going forward, and they probably have to tread pretty carefully in whatever policy decision they try to make because anything they do could have a, a long-term effect that creates a downturn in numbers, but the downturn in numbers mean individuals who are leaving the church and therefore leaving their salvation behind. Um, John, can I can I interrupt quickly to say that I agree with that? I was actually trying to sort of note the most optimistic possible interpretation right. of the effects of this. I understand that. I understand. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you, the other comment is really more of a question. Um, the the masses, it sounds like, from what you said, the masses see the church as a North American or as a United States entity or a United States church. Is there any sense of common ownership that this that yes, it's an American church, but it's like all the Americas. It's, the church is at home in the Americas, not just North America. But you know, a lot of people suspect that perhaps the Lehigh and 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 the Jaredites ended up in Central America, um, mm-hmm. and so that would that not give a sense of more more of a common ownership of the church than just oh, it's 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 a North American church, but more it's like a continental church? That's um, really difficult to answer, actually. Uh, th- there is some good research that's been done. Uh, Thomas Murphy, among others, has done some work on this, about how Guatemalans in particular have, have used these, these geographical theories to kind of appropriate church membership. And actually, Guatemalans, in Murphy's account, sometimes claim that they are more Mormon and more legitimately part of the kingdom than the Anglos. So there, right. there is a kind of identity appropriation that's available. The problem, to some extent, is obviously most Latin Americans are, are mostly um, African and European. It, there, there are parts of the, the region where, where there were lots of indigenous people who survived to have descendants into the present. But, you know, we can list... Um, Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, the Caribbean, and on and on, all these places that have relatively less indigenous um, 
descendants and relatively more European and African descendants, which you know is what it is. Um, but the the more pressing problem, I think, for people feeling that the church is at home in the Americas broadly rather than the United States of America simply has to do with the culture of our worship services. Um, our worship services feel very different from more indigenously Latin American worship services. We feel very different from either Catholic services or the, more new, the newer charismatic services or the older traditional ones. We feel very different from the extremely successful Pentecostal evangelical hybrid church worship that's sweeping through the region. Our, our, our church services require people to be much better dressed than those other, thing, those other groups, much more specifically sort of U.S. business class dressed. Other religious organizations in Latin America don't make that kind of imposition and allow poor people to come in their normal clothes. Um, they are church services focus on quiet and don't, don't invite audience participation in the same way that these other groups do. So that a lot of it has to do with the way we, way we do religion as much as anything else. So white shirts, white shirts and ties prevalent in Latin America still? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in, in, in Mormonism, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and as much as that, it's sacrament meeting where we all sit quietly and listen to one person speak from the stand. That's a very unusual mode of worship in Latin America today. Interesting. I think that sometimes the church is not quite aware of that little things matter. Um, so I go to church in England, and I pick up the hymn book, and... Uh, not only is it the American hymn book with mm-hmm. American spelling, have the Star Spangled Banner and God's Bless America and whatever. I mean, of course, we don't sing them, but mm-hmm. and obviously the church is going to say you, you want us to spend money to have a British hymn book to just take a few hymns out and put some U's in a few words. Well, that <laughs> does make sense. But it's little th- little things like that, even in a satellite of America like Great Britain, that make us constantly feel that we are other. And I dearly wish for the time when my church, the LDS church, can play a part in the spiritual life of my country, but I don't think that that currently happens. I think we remain apart and we do not engage and these little things add up to make us American. And I know that it is starting to irritate people more than it used to. This includes stalwart members of the church here who, I don't know whether it's current events or whatever, but just wish for a time when the church in England could have a more British flavor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there's no, mutant, there's no mutiny on the cards, but um, I don't know. I, and I really, I, I don't know. And I, you talk to Americans about this and they just don't get it. They don't well, understand it. Uh, probably not not every single there, American, perhaps. Well, there, there was there was a guy at, at this conference that we that we had. We talked about this. Uh, uh, Walter van Beek, who's a, a Dutch Latter Day Saint, was talking exactly about this. And uh, one of the comments, the Pope used to be you know, some you know, re- religions are should do and should maintain the flavor of their their host country. Uh, and Mormonism's you know, first host being America. And so uh, Mormonism is American deal with it. which maybe maybe we do have to deal with that, you know? Maybe that's just you know, we need to accept that Mormonism is an American religion 
and God bless America. But that just is, is not yeah. is not always going to work when the when the political and social climate is a little bit suspicious of the United States as it currently is. Now that's going to change in twenty years probably, but it, it will change eventually. Yeah, sure. No, I mean I, there there are churches that have done differently than that. If you walk into a Baptist church in 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 Brazil you're going to find an experience that doesn't remind you very much of a Baptist church in Georgia. There, there, you know, a, a Roman Catholic church service in Argentina is quite different from a Roman Catholic church service in Peru. There are, there are churches that manage to you know, balance theological unity and community unity with, with cultural difference. Now, just to be sort of, to, to present the other side, there are ways in which uh, Mormonism's Americanness can be beneficial. I, one thing that uh, the Mormon Church does in Venezuela very well that that not as many of the Venezuelan churches do is is distribute food to um, hungry people within the congregation, and that's done in a very, you know, business-like U.S. Sort, sort of organizational model way. And and I think that's something that a lot of the members there really appreciate. That that might not have happened if 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 it weren't for this um, otherwise kind of difficult trade. Let me ask a really broad question real quick. Um, Ronan and John, in Europe, just sort of a cycle through the major countries in Europe, is the church overall growing fast, growing slow, not growing, in slight decline or in major decline? I'm just curious how the church's health is doing in Europe overall, if you have a sense for any, any of the countries. My sense is um, that the UK, um, John Fowles and then Ronan. Yeah. My go my ahead. sense go is ahead, that it's it's um, just sort of staying at the same level. It's uh, growing very slowly in most of the the large uh, European countries. Um, if it's if it's growing at all, it might be staying at, you know stagnant, maybe a little bit. Um, or maybe just you know slight positive growth, but not um, not very fast growth. Is that your impression as well, Ronan? Um, uh, well, it's difficult to tell in some ways on on a broad level because you you can't really get much information out of church statistics. Uh, the the church claims 170,000 members in the UK. Um, there's no way that amount of people are going. I mean that's the case all all throughout the world, but. I think right. my, my ward is about 30% activity. That's probably typical. And, you know, speaking anecdotally, I've just returned to my ward after 15 years. Uh, the ward I grew up is smaller. Okay, you broke up there. The ward you, the ward you grew up in is smaller than when you were there how many years ago? I, I left the ward that I grew up in about 15 years ago. And, and I come back, and it's smaller. Huh. Not radically smaller, but we used to get about 120 out. Now we get about 100. Um, and, and not and because I look around, of... and we just we haven't we haven't replaced. Yeah. We've we've lost a few people, and we simply haven't replaced them. Current converts are not sticking around. That's the so I, I it's either not growing. It's either growing very, very smallly, not growing, or slightly declining. Nothing major. Hmm. That said, these are strong. These are strong wards where the Mormon life is as it is in most places in the Western world outside of Utah. I.e., we do everything you do. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So. Huh. And not a lot of stakes created or missions announced in major Western European countries. No. Okay. I mean, the UK has two temples that are that we shouldn't have two temp two temples. The the Preston Temple is it's in a way it's symbolic. You know, that's the early place of the church in in the UK from you know 1837, and it's a beautiful building. But I don't think we warrant it. I'm I'm all in favor of it. I think they should build more, but you know, um, yeah. But but religion across America, across Europe, is not really doing very well. Apart from well, they always say Islam, don't they? Right. And and Jay, so, do we... uh, you know, oh, John. There, I was just going to say in Germany, um, there's also two temples, but um, there's I think you know in the realm of forty to forty five thousand. Latter-day Saints. In 1998, it was closer to between 35 and 40,000. Um, I'm I'm not sure what it is now exactly, but it's hovering around 40,000. So, I mean, that's that's a very small number out of the whole population of Germany. So, you know, the the church remains very small in all of these European countries. Although it has it has the advantage of being relatively well established in these countries. I mean, missionaries came to these countries, England and Germany, for example, very early early on, and uh, the church has a presence here since those times. So, Now, Jay, in Latin America, have you been following the the growth uh, lately in Latin America? I, I know that, like, yeah. oh, tell us about that if you have a sense of it. Sure. I mean, well, you know, I, I've got to start with the stereotype, which is that the, the stereotype is that the church in Latin America is booming, you know, absolutely growing hugely leaps and bounds. That that has never been true everywhere, and it continues not to be true everywhere. There are places where it's growing quite quickly. There are places where it's growing quite slowly. Now, talking about what the the member the numbers that are available to us mean, that's this place to start. The numbers that we have for the most part are official church numbers in terms of the membership counts, and we can take um, percentages of growth and out of the overall population from that. It's hard to know exactly what that means on the ground because the church only removes names from the list when someone's excommunicated, requests that their names be removed, or dies. A lot of members in Latin America you know, are baptized, come to church for a few days, and then are never heard from again. But they don't officially request removal, so they're still in, on the rolls and they're still counted. So there, there have been a couple of different studies done to try to figure out what this sort of correspondence between the church membership numbers and the numbers on the ground are. And the, the sort of rough um, estimates that people come up with are that between about 38 and 50% of people on the rolls attend at least once a month, but closer to 20 to 25% attend regularly and you know, do things like obey the word of wisdom or pay tithing. In other words, 20 to 25% are the kind of people who can have callings, attend the temple, and so forth. So when we talk about membership numbers, you want to start out by multiplying by about 0.4, 0.45 to have a sense of anyone who's actually connected with the church at all, and then maybe divide that by half again to get a sense of who the really, the really sort of serious Mormons are. Um, 
And now there's, there's some difficulty in terms of understanding whether those, those percentages, the activity rates, are increasing or decreasing. And, and that's something we don't need to get into. But one thing we can talk about, you know, the church does have positive growth rates in every country in Latin America during the 2000s. So that's nice. You know, we're having more people on the rolls each year than we did the year before. In many countries in Latin America, though, those growth rates are now lower than the population growth rates. So, so probably a third to maybe 40% of Latin American countries were, were growing in numbers but shrinking as a percentage of the population. There are a handful of countries where, where we are still growing very fast. So Nicaragua has 8 to 9% growth rates through the, through the 1990s. Um, uh, Paraguay is having 4 and 5% growth rates. Um, Venezuela was having 3% growth rates until, until the missionary program was curtailed. Puerto Rico was growing very fast, although I happen to know that um, Puerto Rico has the highest inactivity rate in the church. So a lot of that growth is people who come and go very quickly. So there are places where the church is growing quite a lot. But if you're called on a mission to Latin America, you shouldn't expect any more to come home with 40 or 50 baptisms. That just isn't happening today. Right. Interesting. I should add that uh, I have a I have a friend in Salt Lake City who uh, told me about Elder DDA in Brazil. Have, have any of you guys heard of what Elder DDA is doing in Brazil? No. Uh, apparently, and and this is just uh, through unofficial sources. Almost, I don't want to say hearsay, but but uh, but I have pretty high confidence in um, in the story, and that's that. Elder DDA is participating in some sort of pilot in Brazil where he is in charge of Brazil and he's acting sort of as the equivalent of the CEO of the LDS church over Brazil. And the reason why it's a pilot is because in the past, apparently maybe it's been structured such that the, the wards and branches and stakes went up through one channel up to church headquarters. The missionary program went up through another channel and maybe the temples went up through a third channel all the way to Salt Lake. And, apparently, and actually, the, the church buildings, the, the physical plant went through a fourth channel. Right. So, so the, the stakes would meet in a building, but people, if they needed repairs, they needed to contact an entirely different bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah that's true. And, and apparently what they're trying with Elder DDA is to have all of those four channels report directly up to DDA. Um, and he is the CEO, and, and the goal is to sort of manage the country as autonomously as possible through a single head in, instead of having these four separate lifelines back to church headquarters. So that's just a little word from the street mm-hmm. to, to be verified by any of you in your gumshoe efforts <laughs> or any of our listeners who want to weigh in on, on, the, on the blog or in a future episode. So, so I, I'm going to say something about that, which is I, I think that's obviously you know a good idea for organizational efficiency. I wonder if it really responds to um, to sort of the, the rank and file members' needs. I, 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 my guess is that most members of the church don't know how these things are structured anyway. You know, the the the, the thing that would be a big deal for a lot of people in Brazil would be if the Brazilian church had had its own Sunday school manual, not that the um, same guy can tell you to sort of change where the missions are allocated and also repair your sun, your, your, your stake center. Hmm. Do you guys think that that type of approach in Europe might uh, help get us to the, uh, the more local flavor that we're thinking the church might benefit from? 
Ronan or John? Well, uh, yeah, I'll give you an, ex- an example. Uh, we had a Sunday school lesson about self-reliance when I was in Vienna. And uh, it was talking about um, having a big garden plot, you know, despite the fact we all live in, the, in apartments. And it also had a lot of disdain for, like, government welfare, which is exactly – that's what – Austria bases his entire life on is high tax and government welfare and people like it, you know so again, having some local flavor to how we interpret the gospel in our everyday lives would would be good Interesting Well this is fascinating, Ronan, I'll I'll bring it back to you, are are there any final uh, discussions or thoughts you wanted to bring out um, as we come to a close or any other comments you wanted to leave us with? Oh, I think I've, I think I've rambled long enough. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, I think it's been very fascinating. Jay or John, do either of you have any uh, final thoughts or comments about this internationalization of the church? I, well, I, I actually. I, okay, John, go ahead. John, the. John. <laughs> I, I would just give my final sort of comment and um, return again to this letter from the professors on on. Um, in response to Germany's activities um, with regard to the the sects and harmful sectarian organizations. And they state that the truth is that the Inquisition activities of those hunting down sects represents a threat to the freedom of religion and matters of conscience conscience in an open society. uh, In an open society. And I would agree with that, um, that, you know, Latter-day Saints, face this, it's something that members of the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church simply don't face. They don't face um, a a hostile position of their own government against them. Um, And, you know, it's it's a burden that that members of our church have to face and members of many other uh, churches have to face that are considered new religious organizations. And um, my hope would be that... uh, the stances of these governments would liberalize and perhaps um, not take this investigative route. So uh, that's my view as uh, someone living in Europe right now. Amen. (laughs) And we got an amen from Ronan on that? We did. Yeah. Which in in and of itself is funny because we don't say amen in England. We say amen. <laughs> but I always say amen. So you, you're international in, in just, yourself. Just, just in my amen, you know that I belong to an American church. Right. So just a final thought from me, I guess. Yeah, given given demographic trends, you know the the fact that Latin Americans and Africans and and people in other parts of the re- world, the third world parts of the um, world, have a lot more children right now than than people from Western Europe and North America, it's inevitable that the church is going to continue to internationalize. That that North American U.S. members are going to become a smaller and smaller minority within the church. We are already a minority, and we're going to become a smaller and smaller one as we go forward. And that is going to have some costs for U.S. members. 
you know, the, the fact is that while the church today seems foreign to a lot of people, a lot of our members in the rest of the world, that's exactly because it privileges us here in the United States. We're given, you know, we, we're given general conferences in which everyone speaks our language. Even the people who don't speak our language speak in our language and then are translated back to their native languages for satellite broadcast. The day will come when there's going to be a general conference where even the English speakers speak in Spanish and it's going to be translated to us. And that's going to be something that we're going to, you know, have to face. And when we do that, I hope we can do that with, with the Christ-like attitude of realizing that what we're giving up is someone else's gain, and it's all for building up the kingdom. You're saying because the Spanish will be the predominant language in the church? Well, within, within the next 20 to 30 years, it's projected, Spanish is going to be the, the most commonly spoken language among Mormons. And, you know, that, that, that is... A demographic trend, even even in spite of sort of somewhat falling baptism rates in Latin America, baptism rates in the United States aren't exactly spiking either, and birth rates are simply much higher. So so the demographic trend is going to continue. The church is becoming a church that's centrally Latin American and increasingly African, but not as much you know white North American English speaking, and that is going to have you know, eventually have consequences for how the church operates. It's going to mean giving up some things we're used to, some things we like. And we just have to look at that from the point of view of realizing that what we give up, someone else gets. Hmm. Well, that's a good thought. Uh... There, is th there, is, there is one thing, however, that all international Mormons, I mean, all non-English speaking Mormons have that we don't, and that is a modern language Bible. That is true. So that, Actually, Latin America has a, a Bible that's nearly as incomprehensible as the King James, but that's another story. Ah, uh, shame, shame. The Reina Valera shame. is is quite an old-fashioned Bible. So uh, we can have Spanish general conference. I don't care. That's excellent. I just let's let's have the new revised standard version. Amen. I will be happy. Ah, uh, uh, yes, good. Yes. <laughs> oh, amen. Well, good. Well, um, th thank you all for uh, for your comments and perspectives on a very important topic and one that I'm sure too few of us here uh, in in the United States and especially in Utah spend any time thinking about. Uh, do Do any of you have rants prepared? I didn't uh, ask you about this beforehand, but did anybody prepare a rant? That was uh, my rant. Kind of just sure. did mine. Okay. Oh. So, so the, a couple rants have been given. Who does someone have one? I I'll, I can give you one. All right, Ronnie, go for it. I like ranting. Okay. Right. Anyone who considers the current Iraq war to have been a disaster, what I want them to do is go home, get a piece of paper, write down how they feel and why they think it has been a disaster. Maybe not just maybe not the going in, but the planning and all that stuff. Write it down, sign it, seal it, put it in an envelope, put it somewhere safe. Because I fear that we will not learn from this, and that in 20 years down the road, some other adventure will take place, and no one will have learned the lesson. And I hope that when that happens, we can dig out our envelopes, open them, and say, this was a disaster then, it will be a disaster now. So I just hope we'll learn from history. This That's time. That's my rant. Learn from history this time. Yes. Yes, because we never do. We never do. <laughs> John Fowles, do you have a rant for us? I kind of gave my rant already by, uh, you know, ranting about uh, 
freedom of religion and matters of conscience and, and open society. So uh, that's what I'll that's where I'll leave it. Okay. All right, Jay. Last last chance for a rant. I, I really do feel like I gave my all just a moment ago. So. Okay. Okay. We're good. Well, brilliant. Um, well, I want to thank you guys again for coming on. Uh, it's been fascinating. I hope that we'll uh, approach this topic again, maybe a little bit more in depth in the future, but that we'll have um, you guys on uh, within the coming weeks with other topics as well. So Ro- Ronan, uh, John Fowles, and Jay Nelson Seawright, thank you all for coming on Mormon uh, Matters. Thank you, Thank John. you. Pleasure. And to our listeners, please check us out at mormonmatters.org. Uh, if you want to blog or comment or ask follow-up questions, we'd be happy to see your comments uh, uh, there. And uh, please make sure and check us out again soon. Tell a friend. And we just can't thank you uh, enough for joining us here on Mormon Matters today. Take care and talk to you soon.